Good to see you. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Joel. I'm one of the leaders in the church, and we have teaching from the Bible uh, at Emmanuel week by week. We're just finishing a series of messages that started us in 2019 uh, called Thrive, and this is the fourth and last of these these four messages. Uh, we've been looking at how we as individuals can thrive in the lives that God has given us. This series that we've been doing these last four weeks uh, has occasionally involved us mentioning some, some, some things in the near future, some opportunities for some training and input that you people of Emmanuel can, can access uh, this year. So in the summer term of this year, we're starting uh, a small group called Thrive Money. And this will be available to people from all of our sites. So all of you watching this in Shoreham and the Marina, uh, here in Central Brighton and over in uh, uh, Hove. And we, we will be taking people who apply to, to do this, this group called Thrive Money from all these different, different uh, sites so that we can help you and equip you and serve you uh, to, to the max in in stewarding the money that, that God gives you to look after. This is a superb resource for training us. We, we've uh, just been kind of devising it over the last few years. And actually, as a team of leaders, we've been through it. We've been under the instruction of this training. My wife and I sat down uh, for a whole term and listened to the teaching uh, that Steve Boone brought to us as a team of leaders. And it it genuinely was eye-opening, inspiring, encouraging, instructive, very helpful. I I would say, without exaggeration, it's actually changed our lives. The way we do money has completely changed for the better. Um, so I want to urge you to make use of this. So to find out more, there's, there's uh, information on the screen right now, but uh, weareemmanuel.com forward slash money. Please make use of this resource. We'll be starting it in the summer term. So this is a good heads up, gives you plenty of time to start thinking. But for, I hope, many of you, maybe hundreds of you, when I say small group, this could be a big small group. Uh, But that's a good thing because we want loads of people from across the city to get all the training and help and input they can have in how to thrive with their money. And this certainly involves generosity, which you hear us talking about all the time in Emmanuel, but it's wider than generosity. It's about how we save. It's about how we avoid debt. It's about how we get uh, inspired and get some vision for what we're going to do with the resources that God gives us, how we can build long term, how we can have legacy, how we can pass something on to future generations, and so on and so forth. Some of you will be imagining that there's no future and no hope for you when it comes to your finances. That is the, the general tendency of more and more and more people in our gloomy age, economically speaking. Uh, but I want to urge you to remember that as surely as Jesus has risen from the dead, there is hope for our lives. And hope includes all these different pockets of our life that we sometimes think of as less spiritual. You know, finance. What's finance got to do with the kingdom of God? What's my money got to do with whether God's will is done in my life. I I want to tell you everything. Uh, God wants to set you free in all kinds of pockets of your life. And that includes financially. And and I want to tell you actually from experience that this material that we're doing for the whole church is excellent. I really have been blessed and helped by it. I know you will be too. Get hold of this group. 
Investigate it now. Sign up for it as soon as you can. You won't regret that. It will be so helpful. Okay, Matthew 25 and uh, verses 14 to verse 30. And we're going to read this. We'll get into it. If, by the way, I say anything today that you think, I'd love to investigate that more or ask another question about it, don't forget we do live lunch on Tuesdays. You can connect with us online to find out about this message a little further. That will be on Facebook Live and Instagram Live. Let's go. Verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. To another, one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who's not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word given to us out of kindness to guide us towards light and away from darkness, to open our eyes, to bring us to the, the warmth and the tenderness of your mercy and grace and warn us against the folly of wasted life and vanity. And we pray that you would please send your Holy Spirit to show us now more of the goodness of who you are and help us, each one, to see more fully and more clearly for ourselves just how good you've been to us in Christ Jesus so that we might be drawn to greater degrees of confidence in you, trust towards you, risk-taking, and 
Lord, adventurous life on your behalf. We pray, help us. Help us to be a people who use everything you give us for your glory, uh, to know life in its fullness as you were promising it to us when you came amongst us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we talked last week when we began this story about how there tends to be a division in the way we naturally see the world. We, we automatically tend to see the world divided between the gifted and the non-gifted. And we were saying that's a, that's, that's a kind of division of life that this parable undermines. It doesn't really allow for that because... It insists on everybody being gifted, not gifted all the same, not given all the same level of gifting or the same kind of gifting. There is the one talent, there's the two talents, there's the five talents and each according to their ability. But nevertheless, each one, whatever their level, is gifted by God. And so the great five talent gifted person can't be proud or boastful because, because he or she is still aware, I have this as a gift. I've only got this as a gift. I'm not therefore greater in myself than the others. This is all just sheer gift. And the one with the one talent uh, who, who's been given a gift can't be envious ultimately, can't live in jealousy because, well, I, I've still got this gift that's been given to me and I, I'm not ultimately deprived. I've been blessed. I've been provided for. I've been supplied by the master. Each one is therefore gifted in this, this ultimate uh, wedge that gets driven in between the, the, the ones who are gifted and the ones who are not is, is therefore invalid. It doesn't work. You can't do that. Each one is, is ultimately gifted before God. Each one is, is in that sense valued before God. And yet, in this message, I want to highlight the fact that there is a big division Nevertheless, in the story, it's not a division between the ones who are gifted and the ones who aren't. It's a division between the way in which people respond to the gift. There's a radical difference in the story between those who respond with industry, with, with initiative, with enterprise, and the one servant who does the opposite, who, who doesn't respond at all. Uh, or who responds with laziness, with, with slothfulness, as this translation puts it. The one who does nothing. And both are presented as possible options. They're possible ways that we can respond to the, the giving of God. God puts us in this world, gives us life, gives us the resources to do life. It gives us so much more, as we'll, we'll talk about later. And, and, and then we respond. How do we respond? What, what are the ways in which we respond? Well, that's the question that the parable pushes to us. How are we going to respond? Are we going to respond like the first two servants or like the last, the third servant? Which is the way that you and I have responded to God's kindness to us, God's generosity, God's gifts to us? And this is the question. This actually is a, an extremely decisive question because it... it it shapes the trajectory of our lives. What happens with the first two servants is that not only do they start to invest the gifts that were given them, they start to be very effective and fruitful in their investment, and then they receive the commendation of their master, and then they receive the promotion that follows. 
you've been faithful over this much, now come, you're trustworthy, you should be faithful over more. You should be faithful over great things. Come and enter into the joy of your master. We don't know for sure fully what that means, but surely it means something tantalizing, inspiring, attractive, something that would surely draw out our motives. It would make us want to, to, it it would certainly stir us, it ought to motivate us. And then this other servant is ultimately left outside, is referred to as, as wicked and, and idle. It's a, it's a sharp critique. It's, it's, it's intended to be bleak. It's intended to, to wake us up, perhaps, to give us a slight slap, to make us realize there's, there's danger, there's risk of loss. And so this parable is intended to kind of set a path before us with a fork in the road and say, now, look, you could go one way, but if you go this way, it will really affect the future. It will affect what you become. What you cannot do is stay stationary. If you stay doing nothing, you're effectively doing what this third servant does. Sometimes we, we maybe flatter ourselves into that opinion of thinking, well, I, I can stay neutral, I can be a medium. I can just be kind of you know, regular. And, and therefore, because I'm medium, I, I've, I've made a sensible choice. But this is a story about a guy who could have seen himself as sensible. He did nothing. He could say, well, I'm not doing anything evil. I'm just burying the money. I'm just burying it. I'm, I'm being safe. I'm, you know, I'm playing it safe. But the Bible says, no, no, by doing that, you're becoming something. You're setting a trajectory. By doing nothing, you're doing everything. By, by making the choice not to decide, you are making a huge decision. You are making a huge choice. Maybe without realizing it, maybe by default, but you are making a decision nonetheless. There's a, there's a warning here against the, the, the deception, the, the, the false position that some of us could automatically uh, take on. And, and, and so it's kind of this, this concept, I suppose, that's put before us of uh, you know, entropy. Of like, it's a bit like muscles that don't get stretched and therefore never grow. You, know, you, can, you can have that physically, you can have a body where there are some muscles that because they're never stretched, never grow. In fact, they become more likely to just become, to become body fat. They become the opposite of what they could be. Muscles that aren't stretched, muscles that aren't worked on, aren't ultimately enabled to multiply their strength. They, 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 they lose their potential, they lose their capacity. It doesn't stay stationary, it deteriorates, it decreases. If we're not being stretched, the opposite is happening. We're always in some kind of motion. We are always becoming something. You might feel just sitting in, in, in a church meeting on a Sunday means that you're just sort of in neutral position. But the, the Bible in so many ways, not least through this story, presents to us this alarming reality that we are in fact always becoming something. You always are. You can't, just, you can't just opt out for a stretch. You're always becoming, even in your rest, even in your holidays, even in the times when you're, you're Sabbathing and, and being refreshed. You're still becoming, even at those times. And so to do life intentionally and positively becomes very necessary. To work hard and to rest hard, to work well and to rest well. You do all these things because in, in, in each case we're becoming something. In each case we are being morphed into something. What are you being morphed into right now? 
Do you ever ask yourself that? What am I becoming? Right? What am I becoming today? What am I becoming at my, at my desk? What am I becoming uh, in, in the passenger seat of this car? What am I becoming as I commute on this train or, or on this underground or on, on the bus? What am I becoming in my marriage? What am I becoming in my relationships, my children, my parents? What am I becoming at this PlayStation, at this laptop, on my phone? What am I becoming right now as I watch television? This, this isn't, uh, you don't get to say, well, I'm, well, nothing. No, no, no. This is a constant reality. And so this, this servant's example is put before us as, a, as, a, as an urgent reminder. Neutral is not a real option. And so there'll be a point of accountability. Now, that, that's, a, that's a dark reality. It's also, nevertheless, like I said, a tantalizing side to this story because for the majority of the servants, the story ends so well. You've got two characters who, who are told, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Come up here, enjoy my perspective. See things from where I am. Sit on my throne, as it were. God, it, it just extravagantly dishing out incredible levels of favor on, on servants, on ordinary people who get to receive favor, get to receive commendation, get to receive the blessings of family. Sit with me, enter into my fullness, enter into my blessing. And, and you will rule over many things. You've been faithful with little. You will be faithful with great things. It's meant to tantalize. Why? Because God, God <laughs> is presented through Scripture, through the whole story the Bible tells, not least, not least in the life of his son Jesus as the God who loves to give, who delights to give, who delights to shower with gifts. This is who he is. It's what he's like. It's in his very nature. He wants to reward. Sometimes uh, conscientious Christians get even a bit nervous about the subject of reward because it can it can perhaps give us a slight sense that our motives can become a little twisted. Am I supposed to be motivated by reward? Maybe I shouldn't be. Maybe reward is a little bit of a mercenary motive. It's a little bit lower as a motive. I shouldn't really pursue rewards. Well, Jesus had no problem encouraging us to pursue rewards. He even instructed us to. He said, lay up treasure for yourselves in heaven. Lay it up. He tells us to. It's a command. It's not just an invitation. And so much of Scripture is filled with this because God delights to. God delights to, to honour the, the trusting and obedient servant with reward. God, God de delights to do the same today. He, he's presenting himself throughout as a good father. I was just recently uh, reading of a, a, a father, a, 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 something of an acquaintance of mine, who, who uh, with his son going off to university, <clears throat> had been wanting to see how he would do with the money that he was entrusting to him on a regular basis. How will you do with the money? And just watching to see how will he handle it, how will he handle it. And to his real delight, his son was being a really wise, careful steward, thinking about how much to spend, trying to, trying to keep well within his means and have plenty left over. And he was doing all kinds of smart moves so that, in fact, the amount he had left over every month was growing. And it wasn't because he was, you know, starving himself. He was living reasonably, but he was, he was also being really smart. Each month, the amount that he had left over was actually growing. And he said to his dad after a few months, listen, I've actually got 
I've actually got way more money than I need. You're giving me this much money. I don't need as much of it as you thought. I've been saving more and more. And here, have it back. Have this much back. And, you, you, you know, as a father, you know, you've got to imagine the delight you feel in, in the, the kind of wisdom of a son that's thinking already, how do I do life well? How do I thrive financially? And he's kind of pleased. He's kind of excited about the way his son's doing stuff. But the way he responds is not to say, thanks, I'll have it back. That's really helpful. But he's to say, okay, well done for saving it. You have it. You have it. It's yours. You, you've, you've done so. You've proven yourself a good steward with what you've got. Now, with the surplus, have that too, because I actually trust the way you handle money. And, and in this story and in others, Jesus makes that sort of a point, that God looks at the way we handle the gifts he gives us, and that there is, that there often is, you see it in life, you see that God does seem to, uh, at least occasionally, put blessings in the laps of those who seem to be trustworthy with it who seem to be. Now, we live in a fallen world, so there's all kinds of injustice as well and, and things that seem to go against this, this principle. But nevertheless, it's observable in Scripture and in life that if you steward well, if you look after the resources well that God has entrusted to your care, it's likely that he'll give you more to steward. It's likely that there'll be other ways that he'll entrust things to you as well. And it's not a wrong motive to think, Lord, I want to serve well in your purpose. I want to do life well because, well, one preacher, D.L. Moody, put it like this, the reward for serving God is more service. <laughs> Doing things for God means you get to do more things for God, which is a joy ultimately and a privilege. So we got here a story that can inspire and draw out our motives. What do you want to do with the life God's given you? Do you have dreams? ambitions and, and hopes, what would you love to achieve for God in 2019 or, or throughout into 2020? What would you like to do for God in the next five years, in the next 10 years? What are some of the hopes and ambitions that, that would draw out your energy and cause you to take steps of risk and adventure for God? My friend, don't apologize for those ambitions. Let them draw you. But in the case of this third servant, we see someone who, who, who didn't do what, what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11. He, he, specifically, it said it, that it, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because he, if you come to God, you must believe that he's there and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. This, this third servant, his, his perspective was very different. I want to just think of a few reasons why he took the route he did, because it's, it's worth our learning from his example, even by contrast. And I think there are a few ways we could speculate. We could maybe make one or two guesses about why he went the route he did. And then I think there's actually finally uh, a, a very clear reason given underneath all the other reasons. So from me, just four speculative reasons for why he may have taken the lazy route. And then a fifth reason, which I think is underneath the other four. The first of them, <clears throat> perhaps he was simply envious. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's possible that he's, he's the guy that got one talent, the others got two or five. He may have just thought, oh, 
I don't see the point. They're the ones with the real gifts. Their gifting is substantial. My gifting is insubstantial. My gifting is irrelevant. I have one talent. It's not, it's not significant enough to be of any use. And why do I say that? I say that because I think it's, it's possible for people, as, as people who have in fact been gifted, quite, quite, sometimes quite remarkably gifted, to, for, 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 for sad reasons, assume that they're not. Because in their imagination, in the way they've kind of framed the world, there are certain gifts that matter and theirs isn't one of them. And, and I suppose this happens in every generation. In church circles, for example, though I'm not just talking about church, this could happen in your workplace, it could happen in your family, it could happen in all kinds of contexts. But I observe it in church whereby we see a certain kind of church ministry as valid. We see, for example, what I'm doing right now as, well, what you're doing is spiritual because you're standing waving a Bible around talking to lots of people. And I'm not doing that, so therefore I haven't got a valid role. My gift doesn't matter. You have a, a, so many talents, I only have one. And because I haven't got your talents, I don't count and there's no point. And it could be because of a public role that you've never got to do and you hanker after. And because you don't get that public role that you hanker after, you start to assume there's nothing for you to do. Or it could be because you, you've never been able to achieve as much success at the thing that you do as others have done, even though, in fact, you do it very effectively. But you imagine that because you've only hit what you consider a one-talent level of success, it's not even valid. It's not even worth considering. And this parable's got to get under our skin Help us to see that we're wrong thinking that way. We need, to, we need to have a way more mature, way more comprehensive, way more biblical view of how the body works. And that was really the, the, the main theme of last week's message. So I'm only touching on it briefly here. But do watch for that. If there is in your mind any kind of weird idolatry of having to be a certain kind of person or figure in church life. I see this a lot with young people and worship leading, for example. I have seen it over the years. And we, we've talked more and more against this, and hopefully it's less and less the case. But I remember in years gone by, people who so clearly were hankering after a, a public role of leading worship, that, that when, you, when you said to them, well, you may not ever get to do that, that may not in fact be your calling and your gift, you felt like you were threatening their very walk with God. Their, their very relationship with Jesus was, was built on that. You take that away, they don't even want to be a Christian anymore. You realize, I, I, I realize that this thing that you've idolized has become the, the most influential principle in your life. And that's thoroughly dangerous. So understand what your talent is and get inspired by it. Find out what your gifts and strengths, the unique skills and abilities that God's invested into you should inspire you, should keep you awake, should, in the best sense of the word, drive you. And, and, and lead you on with, with joy and anticipation, not with a sense of frustration and reluctance and constant, constant self-disapproval, constant negative evaluation put against other people who, well, I know I get to do this, but they get to do that. Wrong! Start to reverse this. Start to say, God, help me to realize the inspiring potential you've put in me in terms of the gifts that uniquely you've put in me. Second thing that this could be down to is linked to that really, but I could just call it fatalism or despair. 
And I think, I think this is a similar case in that it can cause people to be stuck thinking, in this guy's case, he, he thinks, like I said earlier, he's, he's not doing anything at least dangerous or damaging. He's kept the talent safe. He's buried the talent. He's not done anything. <clears throat> I guess the sad reality is that for millions of people, that would seem to be an adequate summary of success. I've not done anything. I did all right because I didn't do anything. I managed to get through life without blowing it. That's, that's a very neutral evaluation at best, isn't it? I've not done anything. I remember a friend of mine in the States who said he got tired of what we tend to call in church circles accountability groups, which, which people, you know, men, we, we encourage it. I, I, I have uh, uh, this going on in my life all the time. People that I meet with regularly who ask me what's really going on in my life. And I encourage you to do the same. You need it if you're a Christian. This is one of the reasons small groups are so important, so we can know what's going on in each other's lives. We need it badly. But what it can deteriorate into is, is, is an atmosphere where really what you're checking up on is finding out, hope, hope you've done nothing this last month. Let's get together and make sure, let's just ask each other if you've done anything. Have you done anything? No, I've done anything. Oh, that's good. Well done. You've done nothing. Excellent. You've had a really good week. You haven't done anything. It's basically a kind of, it's, it's guarding each other against any, any, any of the, horrible potential that we might actually do something with our life and it's it's kind of it's all framed around questions have you done this have you done that have you, you know, basically have you looked at porn have you done anything you know bad with money have you flirted with anybody you shouldn't you know all, the, all those kinds of scary questions and it's basically insisting on a load of stuff that you're not meant to do and it's, it's good it's necessary please do this but but if that's the only way we're watching our lives maybe we're in danger the questions I'm asking myself are all, have I made sure I'm not doing things? The accent might be on the wrong side. Then the third possibility, <clears throat> what I would just call super spirituality. Maybe, maybe in the case of some of us, the, the thing that, that draws us away from productivity and fruitfulness is we overly, we overly dress up our indecisiveness and our laziness in spiritual language <laughs> so we get away with it. Well, the Lord hasn't really told me to do this. I, you know, sometimes it, it, you get this in church, like we you simply ask someone to get involved serving. Could you help with um, just putting the chairs away after the meetings, please? Well, I'll get back to you after I've prayed about it. Don't you dare say that to us. Put the chairs away. If you go pray about it, the Lord will perhaps answer you with a thunderbolt. So please don't, answer, don't ask him. The, the answer to the question doesn't, doesn't have to be some kind of dressed up spiritual version of, you know, I, I, I'm going to spend some time seeking the Lord. I'm gonna... Friends, there's, God has given you this capacity for decision making. And, and I say this carefully because there obviously are significant decisions in life where you do need to seek the Lord. There are significant areas where you do need to pray. There are things you, decisions you need to weigh carefully and take adequate time over, but they're not every single decision. And a lot of our inactivity is, is dressed up inappropriately in a kind of spiritual disguise. And uh, it's not always that hard to see through. So please don't yield to that kind of deception as well. So that's the the third possibility. The fourth possibility that actually I think is less speculative because I see a little bit of it in the text of the parable itself. It's, it's really defending the status quo. It's when we're kind of, we don't like change. We might bury the talent because 
To bury the talent protects us from change. When you, when you start to take the talent seriously and take initiative and enterprise, you risk all kinds of certainties of life being disrupted. All kinds of things, things you've come to rely on will get overturned. All kinds of answers to questions that you've had nicely settled will start to be threatened and you'll have to ask those questions again because what, well, because we, we tried something new. We stepped into the unknown. We rolled the dice again. We started over. We, we, we took a risk and that threatens stability. It threatens status quo and it, it causes change. And anything that is an agent of change can be the enemy for us. Sometimes people in, in whatever circles, church circles, in your work life, the people who are most opposed to you when you come up with a new idea or a new suggestion or something you want to try, it may not be because your suggestion is as stupid as they might give the impression of it being. It might be that it's, it's, it's not as, as ridiculous as you might feel that it is from the way that it's being greeted, it might be that it provokes fear. It might be that it provokes discomfort. It threatens things. It threatens the status quo. And the status quo is often seen as need, needed to be preserved at all costs. You've seen this in the lives of many People, I've seen it in churches. Whole churches would rather have the status quo than have spiritual life. Whole churches will, it seems, gladly fly the plane into the mountain, into the cliff. Would, would, would rather have a church die horribly than actually see it come to life in a way that would cause change. Because certainly religious people especially can be deeply addicted to changelessness. Safety, status quo, security, sameness. As long as everything is the same, as long as everything fits in with how I see it, with my comfort zones, as long as everything is the same, we're happy, we're safe. And so change provokes that, it plays with that, it brings a sense of fear. And we need to watch again for that, that danger of of insisting on the status quo. It's kind of in the way that this man speaks about the, the talent. In verse 25, uh, how he responds to the master coming back to him. He says, he says to them, I was afraid I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. You have what is yours. He's, he's really not interested in ownership. It's your talent. I know I didn't he didn't take any involvement. He does he didn't feel like it was his at any point. It's like, no, you have it. I don't care. It's you have this talent that's yours. He never felt that it was something he had any emotional investment with. Because, well, that would bring change. That would affect my life. I don't want the change that that brings. And so he buries it. It's a very vivid image, isn't it? Burying it. What do you do that for? Why do you bury things? Because they're dead. It's interesting, the word interest in this, in this parable is the word in the, in the ancient language, in the Greek, the same word for offspring, life. Life, offspring, interest, stuff that you invest can create life. Instead of creating life, he's buried it in the ground, death. 
We can do that with dreams. We can do that with hopes and ambitions and ideas. Just bury, bury. Don't want, I don't want it. It changes. I don't want the disruption of life. And life is disruptive. I promise you, I've got five kids. Seriously disruptive. Seriously changes everything. Your life is never the same again. When life comes, when multiplication comes, when everything will change if, if, if life comes. Church will change. Where you sit will change. What time your service is, how many services there are, who sits where, who's allowed in the room. Everything will change. Everything will change if real life comes. And that's, for many people, a good enough reason to squash and bury it because the last thing we want is change. God help us. Jesus was talking to a whole society that had got locked into that way of thinking. And he had to rise from the dead himself in order to break it. God help us to live in the good of resurrection life and be prepared for what we say as a, as a, as a major value in this church. Everything changes except the gospel. Everything changes except the gospel because we'd rather have life than constant safety and security. We'd rather have the life that the gospel brings. But before we finish, there is a fifth reason, and it's very clearly there in the passage and that is that this, this last servant is motivated by false fear, the false fear of God. It's, it's there in verses 24 and 25. He says this, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, a hard man. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. I knew you to be a hard man. He was afraid of him. You get the sense reading this story, that third servant doesn't really like the master very much, does he? The other two, they're kind of excited to see him. Look, five more talents, you know, like kids are, you know, with parents. You know, doubtless, many of you after this meeting, if you've got kids, they'll come back from their children's work with, with all kinds of stuff on card and tissue and stuff. Look at this. You get used to that as a parent. Here it is. Look at this. And you, you obviously frame it on the wall. Very important. And, and, and the servants are like that, but this third servant, it's this kind of, <sighs> I knew you were a hard man. That's how I see you. I knew you were a hard man, so I, I, I went and I hid. I, I, was af I was afraid, so I went and hid. It's funny, that very phrase reminds me of Genesis chapter 3. It reminds me of the, the earliest mistake that humanity made in the garden, the first point where we departed from God. And our relationship to God ever since has been characterized by this unhealthy fear. There is a good fear of God in the Bible and a bad fear. Perhaps the key difference is that good fear of God draws you to him. We're frightened, but we're also won over. We're awestruck and we're delighted and we want him. But if you're afraid in the unhealthy sense, you will do all you can to avoid him. I was afraid, so I hid. We hid from you. We were ashamed. We covered ourselves. We kept away. I didn't, I didn't want you. You're a hard man. If you see God as basically a hard man, you'll never take any risks for him. You'll never go on any adventure for him. You'll never trust him. If you see him as the enemy, of course you'll hide your talents in the ground. 
the ultimate difference between the, the two servants and the one servant is how they saw the master. How, how do you see the master? Do, do you see him as basically hard? Hard. I can't please him. I can't, I can't be on his good side. He's hard. Sometimes they said that about Jesus. Can you believe it? John chapter 6, some people heard Jesus teaching, and it was difficult teaching. They didn't understand it, and so they said, this is hard teaching, and they left. Some disciples left him because they said, it's hard. It's the same word. It's the scleros. It's the word we get sclerotic from, like, the, like multiple sclerosis, the disease, hardening of arteries, being hardened. People would say that about Jesus, hard man. Is he a hard man? Is that what he is? Is he a, he's a, a, a slave-driving burden, pressurizing us, bleeding us dry, brutalizing the life out of us? Is that who he is? Couldn't be more wrong. But it, it's the lie that will choke you and lead you into fruitlessness and spiritual barrenness. Because why? there's no point in even trying. There's no point in trying. He doesn't like me. He doesn't want the best for me. He's against me. I won't even bother. Some of us, maybe you've gone that way. Maybe some of you, you've done that all your life and you've hidden from God because you thought there's no way that if there's a real God, he's the kind of person you would want in your life. And I'm here to tell you, not only is there a real God, but he's the kind of person, he is so good that he's given himself for you. The parable says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. <laughs> You, you know that's exactly what he's like. He says to, to strangers, he says to people who don't deserve it, he says to, to just meager people, he says, you, come, sit with me on my throne, enter into my joy. That's what he's like. He's yearning to bless. He's longing to pour out. He's excited, he's eager to be generous to you to give life and blessing to you. That's what he's like. And he, if we doubt it for a moment, and goodness knows there can be reasons for doubting it, when we suffer and we have setbacks, when God seems to take away from us the things that we treasure, maybe some of you have lost things, things that you longed for and hoped for and looked forward to, and then God seems to have snatched it, and the temptation we face is to assume that's what he is. He's a snatcher. He's a depriver. He's hateful. You can let that be the last word about him. But you haven't looked for long enough. You haven't, you haven't stayed watching. You haven't stayed and considered. You haven't let the sun rise on what God is really like. You just judged him in the dark. You shouldn't judge him in the dark. You should let the sun rise up on Calvary and see the cross. You should see what God has done for you. You should see the giving nature of God. You see the, the merciful, gracious hand of God in the giving of himself, in the forgiving of your sins, the willingness to suffer the penalty that you, in fact, deserve and to do it smilingly, gladly, forgivingly. And then you see the true God shining through and you start to realize, I have a good God. I have a good God. I can trust. I can take risks. For some of us, today is all about taking risks again for God. That's what this series has been about for some of you. Thriving will mean risking. Thriving will mean stepping out again. Thriving will mean re reliving old dreams. Thriving will mean praying again, saying, God, I want you to use me this year. Thriving will mean taking steps of faith and courage. 
starting again with stuff that you, you've given up on. That's what thriving will mean for many of us, and it will be long-term. It might be that it's only one talent. It might be you think, oh, it's not much use. My friend, something that seems not much use to you will be like the mustard seed of the other parable, the tiniest little seed that becomes a tree that fills the forest. God could use you to start something in your generation that has long-term implications for generations, children and children's children and beyond. The legacy of what could, God could do through your simple obedience is vast. It's always the way he works, patiently over generations. Do not assume that your one talent is, is too small and too, too inconsequential. Respond with confidence to God's gift to you, remembering his goodness and favor, and expect him to do great things even through you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of grace in Christ Jesus. We thank you for what it teaches us about you and your commitment to us. And we pray that we as a church this year will step up with confidence into all that you have for us, knowing that you are good and faithful. In Jesus' name. Amen.